Merrill Lynch announced a $4.5 billion hit, then revised it to $19 billion, and then finally to more than $50 billion. Morgan Stanley announced that it had lost more than $9 billion on what appeared to be a bet by a single trader. The big Wall Street banks had become the dumb money. Their employees, the putative best and brightest, and surely the most self-interested people on the planet, were committing mass suicide. How had that happened? Someone had to be on the other side of the big Wall Street firm's stupid bets. I set out to find as many of these people as I could. There turned out to be about fifteen of them who had gone all in on the bet against subprime mortgage bonds. The group included some seriously interesting and peculiar people, the sort of oddballs and misfits who would have a hard time getting a job at a big Wall Street bank. Several had come to the subprime mortgage bond market cold, with little knowledge of bonds or mortgages, and none at all of credit default swaps and collateralized debt obligations. Yet, they'd found a way to see what the expert insiders had missed, that the big Wall Street banks had become so bizarrely organized that it was hard to say where their stupidity ended and their corruption began. This handful of peculiar people had bet directly against the big banks on Wall Street, filled with the putatively smartest people, and made billions. How had that happened? To my surprise, these peculiar people proved willing to tell me their stories. But when I set out to retell them, I ran into a couple of problems. One was the sheer complexity of modern finance. How to explain credit default swaps and collateralized debt obligations to my mother. I'm actually not sure that my mother ever read The Big Short. She prefers mysteries. But she has always been my standard. If my mother can't understand what I'm saying, there's no point in saying it. The second, related problem was how to get my mother to want to understand credit default swaps and collateralized debt obligations. It's never enough to explain complicated things to a reader. The reader needs, first, to want to know about them. If the thing is seriously complicated, the reader must very badly want to know about it. My job, as I saw it, was to make the reader badly want to know about credit default swaps and collateralized debt obligations. The marvelous characters who had foreseen the collapse of the financial system became the solution to both my problems. My reader, uh, so I hoped, would feel it was worth trying to understand credit default swaps because these enthralling characters were also trying to understand them. Even then, I wasn't so sure. One measure of my uncertainty can be found on page 77 of the book in a footnote. Dear reader, it begins, if you have followed the story this far, you deserve a gold star. And then goes on to apologize for the demands the story had placed on her. It was an apology to my mother. One problem I distinctly did not worry about when I wrote The Big Short was how to write it so that it would become a movie. Who'd make a movie about credit default swaps? Who, for that matter, would make a movie of any book of mine? By 2008, when I started gathering string for The Big Short, I had come to think of the movie business as a place that spent huge sums of money with incredible enthusiasm to ensure the movies of books were never made. That year, I had the fifth of what had become an annual conversation with Billy Bean about the insane finances of the movie business.
Billy was the general manager of the Oakland A's and the main character of another book I'd written, titled Moneyball. After Moneyball was published in 2003, some movie people called him to ask if they might buy his life rights so they might make a movie of the book.